0: difficult to keep the line between the past
1: and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and
2: take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson,
2: here again with... Genevieve Kosky.
0: Scott Tobias. Keith Epps. On the first half of this episode, we discussed the staying power and startling landscapes of Ridley Scott's 1982 cult hit Blade Runner, about a future bounty hunter chasing rogue androids through the startling far-flung future of 2019. In this half, we'll bring in the new sequel, Blade Runner 2049, and consider how a rival director, Denis Villeneuve, takes up the story. We should warn you up front that Warner Brothers and Sony have been extremely careful to not spoil pretty much anything about this film for viewers. Generally speaking, that's a positive development, and we're entirely in favor of viewers going into a film as open-minded and unspoiled as possible. But a studio statement read after the film screened listed off things we shouldn't spoil, including the basic nature of many of the characters, things we learn literally on their first introductions, or in some cases in the 1st minute minutes of the movie. We were advised that if asked about a certain character, I'm quoting the studio here, please say, we meet many striking characters over the course of the film, and she is one of them. I wouldn't want to single anyone out. You'll have to see the film for yourself to truly appreciate where everyone fits in. Now, needless to say, if we tried to leave this podcast discussion at that, it would be very short and very repetitive. So we are necessarily going to give away plot points here, including right now in my basic setup of the film. You are warned. If you are not ready to listen to this podcast, feel free to go hang out in your virtual reality paradise with your wooden toy horse until it's safe. Uh-huh. Okay, so for the rest of you, Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 takes up the action 30 years after the first Blade Runner. The Tyrell Corporation has gone bankrupt and been replaced. There's a new generation of replicants wandering around Earth, obediently doing whatever they're told. And an android called Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, is placidly working for the police, running down and murdering older replicant models. Then his boss, played by Robin Wright, orders him to look into a case that may suggest a replicant has given birth, which should be a physical impossibility. From there, the case expands to take in characters from the first film, a new set of villains, and some ancillary business, including Kay's love affair with a hologram named Joy. What starts out as a mystery becomes a fairly wandering movie that's more about characters and moods than about plot, which you could say about the first Blade Runner as well. But Blade Runner 2049 feels more divided against itself than the first film. Like the original Blade Runner, it has an unusual structure that bucks against the usual conventions of noir movies, mystery films, and science fiction adventures. Also, like the original Blade Runner, it's as concerned with urban landscapes and the compositions of crowds as it is with any given character decisions. We'll look at how these two films work together and where they seem to be opposed to each other after this break.
2: There is an order to things. That's what we do here.
3: We keep order.
2: The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war.
3: You're a cop. I had your job once. I was good at it.
0: I know what do you want i want to ask you some questions
3: the key to the future is finally unearthed bring it to me they know you're
2: here I told you, you're special.
0: Your story isn't over yet. There's still a page left. All right, guys. What did you think of uh, Blade Runner 2049?
1: Okay, you are, are going to have to h- help me out with this movie <laughs> because I I don't trust my reaction to it. My reaction to the film, if I'm being completely honest, was that I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but... I also feel like that is the reaction yes. that a lot of people had to Blade Runner Yep. in that I've come around to seeing the merits of the original Blade Runner, and so that, that is the, that is central to my mistrust of my own reaction, on top of which, there are obviously wonderful things about Blade Runner 2049 that I my level of engagement aside, you have to appreciate. I mean, it's freaking beautiful, this movie.
3: Yeah, I'm still wrestling with this movie. I want to see it again, which is a mm-hmm. good thing. I was never bored with it. And it is beautiful. It is a beautiful film. I just never quite saw the point of it. And and I have a feeling like a second viewing might change this for me. I'm not really shy about my affection for the first Blade Runner. And this one kind of had, it's going to sound worse than I really mean it, but kind of had like a Matrix Reloaded feel to me where like the first one is visually amazing and raises the interesting philosophical questions. And to stay compelling, the sequel has to like come up with like sort of these strange, twisty variations on those philosophical questions that are probably less interesting than the questions raised in the first one. I don't know, though. I I think a second viewing might change that, but there's things that stuck with me that, that really kind of bugged me about it. Like, Robin Wright is quite good in the movie, but all her monologues about how there's a wall and we need to keep the wall up. And if the wall falls down, chaos breaks out. It's like, well, let's, I think you're spilling, the, spilling this, the themes out of this out a little too explicitly in the way the first one never would. And in a way that the rest of the film doesn't. But it does it in such a way that, that it's kind of like, it's too explicit for this movie. I don't know. I, I mean,
0: I, it, you know what it wasn't too explicit for?
2: A Few Good Men, where we yeah, first got the, yeah, there's a the wall. Yeah, <laughs> <I> speech. <know. laughs> yeah. Genevieve? I think I'm a little more positive on it than, than the two of you are, which I, I think is maybe correlated to me being somewhat less enamored of the original blade runner I still like it quite a bit but I'm just not like crazy passionate about it nor am I crazy passionate about blade runner 2049 but I but I liked it quite a bit and I did find it in general engaging throughout and I think just in terms of Kind of what we were talking about in the first half about like, there's not that much that actually happens in Blade Runner. He doesn't like actually do that much detective work. Like, there is a mystery here. There There is something that is unfolding throughout and that kept me engaged in the story in a way that I'm never really engaged in the story of Blade Runner. I agree that it is trying to do Way too much, and there's a lot that gets dropped, and it does bring to the surface a lot of what Blade Runner allows to kind of percolate beneath it. You know, if Blade Runner is, you know, still waters run deep, this is rough choppy waters run deep. <laughs> yeah. you,
0: you know, and then Harrison uh, Ford almost drowns
1: him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, rough choppy waters. Yeah.
2: but I, I mean, it's it's so freaking gorgeous. Like mm-hmm. it, it, I could just look at this movie the way that I could just look at Blade Runner. Well, I guess, and listen to it because it, it's also orally impressive, albeit in a different way, because this is a Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know what that means. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, I also want to revisit it again. I don't know if I want to sit through almost three hours of it again. Like this is definitely not a tight movie and could probably stand to have two or three plot threads just kind of chopped off completely. Mm-hmm. But I'm pro Blade Runner 2049.
3: And it has a strong story until it doesn't. I, yes. I do like the very... It
2: has third act problems. <laughs> yeah, I do like the
3: very end of this film quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the third act is, to me, kind of disastrous. Basically- I, I feel like a lot of things get raised and then dropped. I had a hard time following what the motivations of some of the characters were toward the end. Mm-hmm. And again, there's things I just I honestly just don't understand about the final act of this film.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it peaks in Vegas and then... Yes. it takes a steep drop <laughs> until that final scene i want to
1: know of, what tasha thinks i don't think we've she weighed in have you weighed in tasha?
2: i have not weighed in Let, last time i talked about this movie you were nauseated from the rumble seats we were forced <laughs> oh, to sit oh in we, the rumble <laughs> seats.
0: we oh the rumble seats that is that is entirely uh wow i just had the word rumbled straight out of my mind <laughs> scott tobias what is your word for stuff that doesn't matter? Extratextual. Thank you. The rumble seats are extratextual. Thank
3: you, the way, not Scott I just, I just knew the word. <laughs> you're, yeah.
0: you're playing Scott Tobias on this podcast, Scott. I feel like we need one of our infrequent high fives. I you you described my my reaction to the movie so perfectly that uh, and this this rarely happens. But no, I'm I'm completely simpatico there. I was bored. Yeah. I, I was really bored, and yet pieces of this movie keep resurfacing mm-hmm. in my mind over and over and over. I keep coming back to things and thinking. What? I'm not sure I appreciated that at the time. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. And I really want to see the movie again, despite the fact that I found my first viewing so so tedious. Yes, it's really visually gorgeous in a lot of ways, although... So Emily Ishida, uh, my former editor at The Verge, just wrote a really interesting piece about fantasy giant women in Mm -hmm. science fiction, the the imagery of the giant woman and how it keeps recurring in science fiction. And that was one of the many things in this movie that was just a a huge turnoff for me, just the the fetishization of the giant naked woman, the giant naked glowing woman hovering over everything or looming over everything in in Vegas where we just – kept getting these dislocated fetishy body parts of women okay i found that just really creepy but But also the giant
2: glowing joy yeah which which is a a nod to the original film too which also had giant you know neon billboard women oh sure you know and so 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 much of this movie is calling to the original Blade Runner including while we're getting extra textual the first scene of this movie where Ryan Gosling's character Kay hunts down a replicant played by Dave Bautista named Sapper Morton sure um that scene is taken from one of the scrapped opening scenes of the original blade runner right am, am i correct here like where he I had not uh, read that. yeah yeah like i I, <laughs> I watched the first half hour of the three and a half hour making of documentary oh before God. i came here i wasn't able to get it all in but i did get to like the storyboarded original introduction of deckard where he is like sitting in this cabin and there's a soup boiling and he kills this replicant and we don't know why. That's the reveal that it's a replicant. It's um, structured exactly the way it was storyboarded in Blade Runner. Okay, and that's, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. I cannot
0: in any way fault Denis Villeneuve's like, fascination with or respect for the original Blade Runner. Yeah. I, I think it shows through here over and over that he was paying attention, that he really passionately cares about things like the Atari logo and the Pan Am <laughs> logo in, in the background. Like He cares about all of these themes, and I think to some degree, Blade Runner 2049 does feel like he's aware that all of these things were uh, undercurrents, that maybe weren't fully developed or fully expressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to both bring them out more overtly and not not have anybody say, gosh, I just don't know what it means to be human. Perhaps there is some way that we could explore that, even though I myself am not human. <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't want to overplay it more than he has to. So I think there are still some like fairly subtle things here about the whole question of humanity and and the nature of what it means to be human. But at the same time, (laughs) this film does need an edit. I'm really curious about the things that you don't understand about the third act. There are things that completely baffle me.
3: What happens to the rebellion? Where does Jarrett Leto go? Does he go anywhere? Yeah, it's just a lot going on that I was not following all the, all that well. Uh, maybe it's just it was so deep into the night at that point. But uh, <laughs> I also felt like the movie was had done a pretty good job at like moving me along in a coherent fashion, uh, and then and then stop doing.
1: Were that you being jostled much. by the
3: seat? Was that the There's, problem? Is, well, oh my God. All right, let's so about let's the let's seats. talk. You know, <laughs> it is it is apart from the movie we got to talk about. We we all saw this movie in a Dolby Atmos outfitted theater. Uh, here in Chicago. It's, and, it's
0: specifically AMC Prime, because apparently there are Atmos theaters that don't have the rumble seats. Sure. Yeah, uh, Atmos is
3: really just about uh,
1: sound, a very sound. vivid sound, yeah. which which another theater we go to and here picture. called Icon has yeah. it. It's great. It's, yeah, it looks yeah.
3: looked great movie sounded great, except for it had a very deep bass, which I like. I like a deep bass. Turn that subwoofer up. Sounds great. Except when the bass would rumble, the seat would rumble along with it.
0: Like hard. Like, like hard. You're sitting in a roller coaster level, rumbling.
3: Yeah, kind of like, you know, one of those, those motion control rides, you know? And it was very annoying, and there was a lot of
0: it, it <laughs> was throughout the film. so You
3: actually got a headache, right?
0: I got a headache, and I, I, I am not subject to motion sickness. I am the kind of person, I can read on a train, I can read on a bus. I have never had a problem with motion sickness. I walked out of this film so nauseated, I did think I was going to throw up. So
3: we're to the say... Cool it, (laughs) cool it with that whole deep bass rumble seat thing.
0: That is one of the reasons I I think I could stand to rewatch this Mm -hmm. film. Is uh, it it literally felt like an army of toddlers kicking my chair throughout? (laughs) I would say roughly eighty percent of the film. No, it was uh, so distracting. you you watched uh, it with uh, that too. I did. I did.
1: I'm I'm behind you. That is that is another reason why I throw my own reaction to the film into into the question. Yeah,
3: but getting back on track, am I wrong to be be confused about those things in the third
0: act of this movie? I think Jared Motivations are really confusing. I think that he. It is obvious that he wants to play God and cross lines that no one should cross. And then eventually his creations are going to come for him because that's how science movies work. But apart from that, he has a lot of big, windy speechifying that reminded me a lot of The Architect in the latter Matrix movies. Mm-hmm. And just that sense of here's a big, heady philosophical thing that is, maybe is tied into the concept of the movie, but is in no way interesting to the action of it. And he talks and he talks and he talks and he talks. And the whole time I'm thinking, yes, but what do you want? And then he produces his big grandstanding effect, which Scott may give away. I don't particularly want to. But when he does it, it's supposed to be a, a hugely jarring emotional moment. And for me, it was like, yeah, but how does this further his goals that we don't understand? What does he want to happen here? Yeah, like yeah.
2: like at, at a very basic level, what does the the maker of replicants stand to gain from self perpetuating replicants? His business is making replicants. Like, what, <laughs> why, why why does he want that? Here we get He's into replacing
1: himself yeah. by automation.
0: Well, here we get into Alien Covenant business or just the recent Ridley Scott Alien sequels in general. We're back to that feeling of if I create life that can create life, if I create life that has intelligence in the way of normal biological life, then I am a god Mm -hmm. and I deserve to be elevated to godhood, which is a thing that comes up a lot in movies about science in the future and is very rarely done in a way that I think is interesting and certainly not here.
3: I also didn't find the performance all that great in a film that that is otherwise – Nicely acted. I, I mean, I, I, people reflexively don't like Jared Leto. I don't want to be one of those people, but I I, Ooh, I, 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 I didn't care for him <laughs> in this
2: film. No, I think it definitely played into what people think makes Jared Leto performances bad. Yeah, this is a man that married.
0: sends dead rats and used condoms to his co-workers because he thinks it it helps his method. I reflexively dislike him. I, single, no I think he
1: single-handedly him. just killed Method,
0: method. It's <laughs> yeah. it over now. <laughs> he, I, I, he needed to die. I kept yeah.
3: thinking and there's a scene where he comes up to, to Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, and, and touches him and says, I'm so happy to meet you. I've always wanted to see to meet you. And I'm like, is this actually in the film, or is this an outtake of Jarrett Leto meeting <laughs> Harrison Ford? Because he has this look on his face like, get away from me,
0: kid. Maybe it's meant to parallel that moment where uh, Deckard is trying to make out with Rachel and she's trying to escape. Yeah. It's just, it's all a gender reverse thing. It's like, this is how uncomfortable you made her, you jerk.
1: One thing I would say about this film and my reaction to it is that so much of it is so reflective of the first film that it feels trapped by it and i would say that that by far my favorite moment of the film my favorite sequence of the film is all the stuff in las vegas Uh, because i feel like it's both it's visually extends the, the the world of the film so much it's such a you know i mean the film is beautiful all the way through but you don't feel like you're getting a really souped up version of something you've already seen before that this is a new place and and a new environment and then you get this relationship that starts to develop between Kay and and Deckard and, and all that seems exciting and not so tethered to the original film
0: i think one of the most striking moments of the film is where the two of them confront each other in a basically a virtual cabaret that's malfunctioning Mm -hmm. and we have these marilyn monroe and, and elvis and other characters blinking in and out of existence while the soundtrack blares the music that they're playing and then it cuts in and out and it's It's unsettling. It's very disjointed deliberately because the system around them is breaking down. And like so many things in this film, I found that fascinating. And then it just seemed to overextend. I, I felt it went on twice as long as it needed to, to make its point, to put us in the moment, to actually play out the action of the fight that they were playing out. And it reached a level of tedium for me.
2: I, I never got that that tedium, but just the Vegas sequence in general speaks to something that I think... This film takes Blade Runner a step further, I think, in a positive way, is showing us the, this world beyond Los Angeles. You know, we go to several places outside of the city limits. You know, in addition to Vegas, there's the protein farm, I guess, that uh, uh, Dave Bautista is at. And then there's San Diego, which is a literal dump now, you know. Uh, like, <laughs> it's a nice city, too. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's bad. Well, no, yeah. Dude, sorry, San, um, San Diego. So, I ju- kind of what you were speaking to in the first half, Scott, about how there's just a lot less. viewers to like mull or wonder about this world there's a lot left unsaid this says more about the world in a way that like, I found satisfying, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I love world building in general, and I liked what this movie added to the world.
0: The thing that I most loved was the relationship between Kay and Joy, mm-hmm. his yep. his iteration, his copy of this software that is meant to please you and bring you everything that you want and satisfy you. And it's very much, it feels like a riff on her Uh, The Mm -hmm. movie a little bit too much at times, a little bit too much, especially with the surrogate, the sex surrogate. Absolutely agreed. But at the same time, you know, it does it does visual things that her couldn't do because Samantha is not a, a physical visual presence. The way Joy is perpetually trying to touch him and can't and has to bring in a surrogate for that, I found visually fascinating, especially when she brings in the surrogate and they don't quite overlap, but she keeps trying to make it happen. That whole sequence I found really interesting, but even more so the idea that because Kay is a replicant and people seem to know he's a replicant, though I don't know how, just casual encounters of people on the street call him a skin job and, and insult him and yell at him. The fact that he is just this loathed creature that cannot form a relationship with other people or other replicants, and so he attaches himself to this virtual presence that is designed to love him, I find that to be a really poignant science fiction concept that I think the movie carries out really well. And the scenes where they're alone together, and the movie is about the two of them, are th- the most compelling in the movie for me.
2: By the way, Joy is a character Tasha mentioned in the intro that we couldn't <laughs> reveal the nature of, of her character. She's she's a hologram.
0: We uh, know because we see the hologram emitter before we see her. She's introduced as a hologram. I,
3: I think you know the expiration date may be up on those, uh, <laughs> those spoiler warnings. I'm mostly at this point.
0: just I find it fascinating that that we were read off this list of things that we weren't supposed to cover, and that they it was so all encompassing. I find that just fascinating,
1: uh, and, and in the suggested language, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the point where they scripted what we were supposed to say if anybody asked us about the film is hilarious. You know, we but do anyway. a lot of fascinating
3: characters, and she is one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've all kind of covered like a favorite aspect of this film that is doing so many different things. Except you, Keith. Like, do you have a standout moment or scene or thought?
3: I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say the Las Vegas sequence as well, and and just him wandering around and the sort of this sense of las Vegas that's gotten even more decadent than our Vegas like in part because of these these sort of giant sexualized statues and the elements like that I mean one thing this film does really well is rather than starting from scratch, it ages the world we saw in Blade Runner mm-hmm. thirty years in a really convincing way I thought that was that was one of the best things about it, although I think it's less interesting looking than Blade Runner. I think the Los Angeles of this film is a little, I didn't want to wander around it the way I want to wander wander around uh, the original Blade Runner's uh, uh, Los Angeles. It's,
1: it's probably true. One thing that just occurred to me now about Vegas and how, again, how striking it is and how it extends the visual language of the film is just the, the idea that the desert is reclaiming that city mm-hmm. which is interesting right i mean like that's 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 an interesting thought about vegas because vegas as we know it does everything it can to to keep from reminding you that it is in the middle of the desert it's all electricity and modernity and, and in in defiance of nature and now nature is coming back to reclaim it I, I really like that aspect of that sequence
3: i like the giant dump too i i just see the miles of garbage piled on top of each other that that was a striking image as well
0: this is a film of very striking images. I, I thought that some of the stuff done around virtual reality or virtual memory in the film was really visually interesting. It's sometimes visually interesting in a very show-offy, we have a big budget, we can create whatever we want here kind of way. But even so, I guess I just overall find the way that people interact with virtual reality and augmented reality in this film to be pretty interesting because it is... It's both visually dynamic and thematically rich, thematically interesting. It's explored in a very interesting way. What... Memory. You're talking about memory, what that actually means Mm -hmm. uh, for these characters. And that is something that is kind of drawn out of Blade Runner, this idea of artificially implanted memories. But the the new film expands it to a greater degree by by figuring out sort of what that looks like, what it looks like to build them, what it looks like to experience them, what
2: it looks like to discover that they're false. Well, and it it makes it the center of its mystery, Mm -hmm. you know, like this memory of a wooden horse that propels Kay through the story. -hmm.
3: I thought she was great too. Carla Jury, who played uh, Anna, Mm -hmm. the the dream maker. She was in Wetlands and Morris from America. Um, oh my gosh! And, yes, wetlands. Holy smokes yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Like her performance was like at a at a slightly different tone yeah. than everyone else in the movie. In a way that I really like. There was a I don't want to say it was funny, but there was a lightness to it mm-hmm. in a movie just characterized by very heavy performance it styles. That. You know, yeah, it did for sure. It,
3: it needed a couple. It was a couple nice moments. Yeah, Mackenzie that,
2: Davis I mean. kind of gives a little bit of that energy too. Although her character is a little more serious.
3: And Gosling has like he carries himself in a very light way, even when the material is heavy. And I thought that was—I
2: thought he was great here. I I, I really enjoyed Ryan Gosling in this. Yeah,
3: it was well—it was well cast.
2: I generally do. I mean, he's just.
0: He's a very rich performer, I think. I miss. that' a
3: sad smile. I yeah. think that that serves him well, and it serves him well in something like La La Land. It serves him well in something like this as well.
0: I I miss having a little bit of that, like the Harrison Ford smirk, like in that central character. That sort of feeling of swagger, because you really do get the feeling that Kay is burdened by life, is burdened by the things that he is asked to do that he has no choice to do. There's a kind of creepy sexual harassment moment with him and Robin Wright, where mm. Robin White- Wright is basically like, I got a bottle of booze and I could order you to do anything that I want. And it's creepy and unsettling, but you kind of get the feeling that that's sort of just what he's used to in his life is this feeling of being at, at everyone's back and call. And we're told the new uh, Order of Replicants, Obey Without Question, but we we see the weight of that on him, I think.
2: I think Harrison Ford's performance is interesting in that I, th- I feel like his Deckard here is a lot different than his Deckard in the original Blade Runner. And I think we can maybe talk about that. More in the next section.
0: That is a really good point. Uh, We can talk about both how the two Deckards mesh with each other and kind of how Old Deckard and New K are are similar characters in a way. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. The Nicholas for the colonial ships, closest any of them will. Any of us is going to get to that grand life off-world. So come
3: on
2: now. What sword do you have in mind?
3: Because I got... all
2: kinds. Oh no, no, no. I'm not buying. No, no, no. This is just my game, and I play it fair. No, no. I mean,
0: bigger than you. Bigger than you were trying to shut me down, bigger than you, and they were, they were men at that. Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Why don't we start yeah. off with that whole Decker versus Decker thing, Genevieve?
2: Yeah, I mean, I actually liked Harrison Ford's performance here, I think, more than I did in the original Blade Runner. And maybe because it does have a little bit of that quality that we discussed is what you think of when you think of a Harrison Ford performance that is absent in Blade Runner. There is a little bit more of not exactly swagger to Deckard here because he is hiding out. He's not necessarily in control of his situation in, in any way. But you get the sense that this character has been through things and has changed and that there is more to him. Whereas I feel like the Deckard of original Blade Runner is a little more of a blank and like you project things onto him that the performance doesn't necessarily give you. And I think here the performance is giving you things about the character. I think
3: young Deckard thinks he's out of Fs to give. Yeah, and this old Decker realizes he he, he, he has even fewer F's to get now. That is a beautiful
2: way to put it. Keith, thank
3: you. And and did not get an explicit rating by say, by phrasing it in such a way.
1: Well done. That's a good point. And he's not the he's not the lead of this movie. Yeah. He's not the, this is not his story. You know, we find him apart from the world of the film, and um, it affects him. And I'm glad that that's been thought through. That those differences have been thought through, you know, both on a scripted editorial level and on a performance level, because you're, you're right, they are not the same performance.
3: How, how great would it be? I know it would be a marketing disaster, not that this film necessarily performed that well at the box office, but but how great would it be to not know that Harrison Ford was in this movie? to have him show up in the third act and, <laughs> you
1: uh, wait for a long time I know how long do you wait would, for him I to would show have up I was not
0: expecting it I mean if nothing else because of Force Awakens I was honestly expecting him to show up here and, and die Yeah, and I'm expecting Indiana Jones 5 for him to show up and die I, I feel like Harrison Ford just wants to kill off all of his legacy characters in one, no. yeah. and
1: regarding Henry too, he shows up wait no, no go ahead
0: one of the things I find really interesting about like looking at these two films together is that Rachel is kind of a femme fatale but she's also So kind of a classic, like, damsel in distress. She finds out that she's a replicant. She doesn't know what to do with it. She is now under a death sentence. She comes to a dude. The dude is like, "Ah, let's have sex. She's like, I don't think I'm into this. He's like, I don't care. And then she trails him around for the rest of the movie and is hapless and cannot really think or act for herself. She is an object. In Blade Runner 2049, I would argue that Harrison Ford is more or less an object. He tries to fight off Kay, and he kind of can't, and then he kind of gives up, and then he spends the rest of the movie being hauled around by the arm by one person or the other. He gets kidnapped. He gets threatened in a kind of brutal and maybe a little sexual way, and then he ends up tied up in a van watching somebody else fight for his freedom. The role that he is in in this movie is a classic woman in an 80s action movie like he has practically no agency. Hmm. And the more that developed, the more fascinating I found it.
2: That is really interesting because I was kind of thinking that the Deckard-Rachel relationship in Blade Runner had kind of been imported over onto Kay and Joy. And reviewing those relationships as kind of speaking to each other. But that is a really cool interpretation that I like a lot. It
0: yeah. didn't come up for me until we were watching him, like, in the – we kind of referenced the the storm-tossed waters. He spends that entire uh, yeah. sequence just waiting to be rescued. See,
1: it's this sort of thing that, again, makes me mistrust my own reaction. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm. So these things after the fact that uh, maybe I did not acknowledge that I should have.
0: I think that we'll all have a different reaction to it the second time Hopefully
1: around. Hopefully I, I can't be jostled. Go jostling <laughs>
0: we'll all go to a non-jostle theater and see it together.
3: I was hoping at least one of us would be of the it's even better than the first one camp, mm-hmm. uh, and we're not. But, but I find that reaction fascinating. I don't agree with it. I really don't like that a lot of the, the writing around this has been a chance to kind of throw the first movie under a bus in some ways you know i don't like the blade runner was not very good this movie is much better than the original because the original is not very good i that that, i uh i'm not a fan of that that school of thought uh but it is interesting to me that there's there are people for whom this will be the equivalent of blade runner you know maybe i'll be a convert to one of those one these days i'm not sure i do want to see it again i don't think there's as much going on here though
1: Man, respect your elders is what, like, I mean, as far as like the original film, I mean, come on, the, 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 the whole look of the movie, the whole conceit is that that was done before. You gotta
0: give, show some respect. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel that's a little like saying Alien Covenant is better than Alien.
3: Now, I wanna to talk to you about that. No, um, <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that both of these movies question what it means to be human. And both of them kind of uh, address the idea that it it maybe is your behavior. But then 2049 kind of goes into this whole (laughs) apparently coming out of a womb is super important. Mm -hmm. I'm really wondering why it doesn't interrogate that impulse a little more. Or maybe it does in that by the end – Perhaps we come to see Kay as human and and having a soul regardless of the fact that he did not come out of a womb. I find his almost religious belief in that concept really fascinating since we're kind of given to understand that everything that he is, his uh, memories, his mental processes, was supposedly programmed into him. Where did he come up with that idea?
3: I mean, the first scene, De Bautista's character, um, Spooner or whatever, whatever. Spooner <laughs> Olderman?
2: Sapper <laughs> Morton. Sapper
3: Morton, yeah. <laughs> you know, he talks about it as a miracle. And I think, mm. to me, it's less that this replicant has a soul where others doesn't, than this is proof the replicant's can have souls that, and that we that, that can be people too, and I almost feel like, in some ways, this film treats the do replicants have souls, are replicants on the level of humanity as kind of a settled issue, and then moves that on to the artificial intelligence of, of joy. That's a question, then. It's less a matter of of how replicants reflect on humanity than how this other artificial being reflects on on both replicants and human humans.
2: I I can't get over the fact that the two most prominent forms of female AI in this movie are named joy and love. Mm -hmm. It it seems like the whole movie is kind of like commenting on like the ephemeral experiences that define humanity. The first Blade Runner was very fixated on the idea of memories and memory is what makes replicants more human than human or is what gives them that extra push into humanity. And Rachel discovering her memories aren't real is what causes her to question her own existence. And in Blade Runner 2049, like the question of memories is a, it's a settled thing, you know, replicants are aware of what their memories are. So I think Kay's kind of wrestling over this idea of a soul is sort of like the next logical progression of that that questioning the, the replicants have of like what makes them human
0: For me, I guess the, the original film's idea that somehow like the choices that you make are what make you human is so much more resonant and interesting to me than the idea that childbirth makes you human. The whole miracle
2: of childbirth thing in 2049 sits really poorly with me for a variety of reasons. I don't think it's about childbirth necessarily so much as being created by two of your own kind or or like being created by one of your own kind or, or one of your own kind. Yes. But like not being created by human hands as a slave, being born into the world as a free being.
3: Organic Beat. It's a next step.
2: But the whole miracle thing, they hit
0: it so hard, like starting with Dave and in, in the opening scene and carrying on through the revolution, the idea that this is a miracle. And I, to me, the choices that people make... That is an interesting – that is always an interesting and resonant thing. Like in, in cinema, it becomes hugely important. It it so often drives the plot. The choices that you make define who you are. But they also model a, a behavior for people. You know, you have a choice. You have options in the world. The things that you choose to do are important. You don't choose to get born uh, from from a replicant. Like the least interesting thing to me is where that character like originated and then when you pile on the sort of weird like messianic qualities of born of a replicant slash born of a virgin, and then you pile into the, the way that everybody sort of worships her. And then you pile in the fact that Rachel died in childbirth, so we never have to contend with that character on screen. All of that just adds up into this weird fetishity. Fetish, I can't say fetishistic fetishization for somebody who says fetishization as as often as I do you would think I would learn how to say it but there's so much of that around like motherhood and the ability to reproduce in this movie and I find it both interfering with the interesting parts of the plot and just not very interesting in and of itself
2: yeah I don't know I just I, I think it just comes down to the motivations or the emotions behind one's creation you know, and whether it comes out of a place of capitalism and consumerism and slave labor or a place of love and joy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, between two beings who love each other. So I, I, I think that's maybe the, the contrast that is being grappled with there. Though obviously not in a very straightforward or satisfying manner. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As with so many other things. Yeah, I maybe if they did actually grapple with the whole love thing. Like, because to me, we're just coming out of that weird,
2: uncomfortable, rapey scene. Yeah. Not having any idea of like Rachel and Deckard's relationship after the events of Blade Runner is like kind of hinders that I think. Yeah. And then the fact that he left
0: her. Like
2: immediately for what is
0: presented as good reasons, but emotionally I just didn't buy into it. The whole jump from we don't know much about their relationship because there isn't much there in the first film to we don't know much about their relationship because it's over in the second film leaves a huge gap in what's supposed to be in some kind of way an important part of all of the story. We can jump to uh, a variety of uh, less heavy and miserable things. We, we should talk about the cinematography in these two mm. movies uh, Roger Deakins, Deakins in the new film and Jordan Cronenwith. Jordan Cronenwith, who was, uh, uh, among other things, he was the DP on Altered States and uh, Stop Making Sense. Did a lot of music videos, especially with Madonna in U2. Peggy Sue got married. I mean, (laughs) he's not a hugely prolific uh, cinematographer, but he did some really memorable stuff. Well,
1: he was. He was on Alien 3. He was David Fincher's photographer and I think was ultimately fired for being too slow. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So I think he was a very deliberate worker. And and, and then Fincher would go on to work with his son, right? Jeff Hmm. Conan
3: with, yeah. Yeah. And he died relatively young, 61. So we might have have gotten more films with him if if that were not the case. He did a good
1: job. Looks great. Blade Runner.
0: I mean, both of these films
1: are oh, great. Oh, God, I know. And, I, and I, I love that Blade Runner 2049 continues Villeneuve's interest in landscapes. He loves mm. – his signature shot is that overhead of whatever, you know, very textured surface is – I mean, the present. the
2: opening sequence of this movie where Kay's is flying over that protein farm and there's just – it's like a horrible, like, white patchwork quilt of desolation mm-hmm. and – it's it's a really fascinating like way into this movie especially contrasted with Blade Runner, which opens with blackness and light in this incredibly striking way and it feels very much like the yin to the yang of, yeah. of Blade Runner there. I'm glad
3: they went that way too you, yeah. tr- you try you open on Los Angeles and you're just setting yourself up to be compared yeah, how to can you, Blade. I
1: mean it's one of the most famous opening sequences in film history. You really don't want to try to uh, top it or replicate it.
3: Yeah, and he Deacons brings a lot of different looks to the film too and I feel like his Los Angeles kind of has the same look and feel. Uh, up to a point of, of the original, but then the, those excursions away from Los Angeles, uh, every one is uh, a little different, and I and and Las Vegas especially. I mean that that is among his career best um, moments was that, that Las Vegas stretch.
0: And you know, I uh I dissed the whole sequence where Kay is talking to or really just sort of being advertised at uh by the giant glowing woman who is an advertisement for the joy operating software yeah. basically. <laughs> but I mean you can't fault how that looks. The the inner glow of the, the hologram character and the, the bright pink skin and the blue hair. Uh, and then the way she just sort of towers over him and everything that is not her is just this sort of like dark, very exquisitely detailed, but sort of just dark shadows and shapes. I mean, it's I, the the things that Deakins does with light it, are always impressive. And some of the things that he does here in the contrast between neon light and the darkness of the world, the, the buildings, the uh, architecture are just really, really impressive.
2: At the same time, 2049 doesn't have as much of the shadowy quality that I associate with noir. Like I, I, I see very little noir mm-hmm. in, in 2049. Um, I think it's less in, of a noir film. though. Yeah, mm-hmm. ex- exactly. Like I think to the extent it's there, it is there because it is picking up like visual cues from Blade Runner, but it is, very much i don't i don't even know that there is a, a genre that i would connect its style to specifically the the way that i would connect blade runner to noir style more
1: pure science
3: fiction
2: ideas. yeah, yeah.
3: Or, or kind of like an 80s 90s you know police thriller in some ways
2: yeah it definitely has the look of a much more action heavy film than it is yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: yeah sorry <laughs> sorry that that it has in common with later on yeah. but um i i did appreciate that aspect of of the film is because as much as you criticize 2049 for being too much of a kind of an overlay of what we'd seen before or, or taking up uh, taking up themes or in subplots and doing them again or highlighting them in some way i think there is a real effort on Deacon's part and on Villeneuve's part to extend the visual language of the film and make it something new or at least more expansive and you know exciting than than what we'd seen before and that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Given the reputation of the first film, and I think the film pulls it off quite well.
2: I think it carries through to the music, too, which I, I don't know how deep we'll go into this connection. So I'm just going to like peg it on to cinematography and, oh, sure. and make mm-hmm. this just connection about style in general. But we have Hans Zimmer taking over for the Evangelist score, which has echoes throughout 2049 but is very different in its way and, and does move it into a different tonal direction. Because the thing that I always like that always stands out to me in that Vangelis score is kind of the, the synthy saxophone mm-hmm. line throughout and just like because, you know, the, that saxophone is just such a... D- Detective noir cliche or, 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 or touch point, you know, and like to have it filtered through this very synthy sound is just really kind of spot on for Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And then in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, you have so much of kind of the modern blockbuster action movie, just like rumble, you yeah. know, kind of a- a- aggressiveness, you know, that I think defines a lot of. Modern sci-fi and action films.
1: But so. It's still artful. That being the um, oh, yeah. no, the, I, ambi- I like the ambiance. It it's like an ambiance. It's so. Th- Thick in 2049, whereas Vangelis has that romantic score.
0: The thing that strikes me most about the music is that the Vangelis score is, uh, it's very moody. Mm-hmm. It's very, as you say, just evocative of that sad trombone, mm-hmm. sad trombone in the rain. Whereas <laughs> because of the rumble seats in part, which struck me most okay. about 2049 is was the bass. Mm-hmm. There is an incredible amount of low end in that movie. Yeah. That I think if the seats weren't shaking, it would just sort of come across as like this this kind of like dull low rumble of of discontent running mm. through the entire film. This sense of ominousness, yeah. and it's my, one of my big problems with the rumble seats was it is impossible yeah. to take ominousness seriously <laughs> when you're like listening to all of these little servos <laughs> violently we're, we're shaking. It feels like your seat, seat is farting.
2: Yeah, yeah. exactly. This was
1: my least favorite SE Hinton novel, Rumble Seats. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't know if it'll ever surface, but I would love to hear the original score mm-hmm. to this. Uh, mm-hmm. Johan Johansson, who did the, the music for Prisoners and Sicario, did a whole score for this that so it was not used. Hans Zimmer was brought in. I, I'd love to – I mean, his music in Arrival especially was, was so key to that. I'd, I'd love to at least sample it and see what it, what it was like.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is fascinating. I guess before we uh, head out on this one and uh, go cry in the rain, as is our want, I, one of the things that connects these movies most for me is, a. a as I said, I guess, the idea that what you do uh, is what matters as opposed to how you were designed, where you came from, what your origins are. But it seems to me that both of these movies end up being about what makes life meaningful, uh, if you have a very short lifespan, if it's uh, defined for you, and all of us have a lifespan that is defined for us, not entirely by our own choice. Not me. I'm going to live forever. Okay. Everybody everybody <laughs> except Genevieve, who's immoral. Uh, and that has not been proven wrong yet, so yep. probably true. So I think that both of these movies especially given where they end with Roy's choice regarding Deckard and with Kay's choice regarding his purpose, kind of come down to the idea that you have a short period of life. You need to do something to define it. You need to make that life meaningful. And I think that they they both actually take that up in a really strong and interesting way. I mean, I, I think one of the most interesting things about the original Blade Runner is what Roy chooses to do at the end.
3: I think one of the most interesting things about this one is K or Joe, I don't sure what's going through his head at the end of this movie. I don't think we'll ever know, but it, but maybe he feels like he's made the right choices and, and he's contributed in some way to furthering the replicant existence, or maybe he feels like he's wasted it at all. Like I, I, I think just as like, I don't think we know his final thoughts on joy as to whether or not that love was real or, or just programming. Um, I don't think we'll really know what he's thinking at the end.
0: Really? I, I get a very strong sense that that interaction with the, the big version of the hologram where she call she uses some of the same words and yeah. it's it obviously emotionally hits him. I thought that was where he made the decision that maybe this love wasn't real. It was programmed and he has to do something to define himself. And in those last moments, I really got a sense of like accomplishment and achievement and satisfaction from him that were very similar to Roy's last. Yeah, that's, that's
3: more or less where I am too, but I, I, I don't think the, the film spells it out for you. And I appreciate that.
0: Mm. I think there's a lot in both of these movies that isn't spelled out. Then we can all probably appreciate it more for that. Well, uh, Blade Runner is available on DVD and Blu-ray in many, many forms, which you can read about all of the different cuts online, though, as Keith said, there are only a couple that really matter. It's also available for digital rental on the usual streaming services. Blade Runner 2049 is currently in theaters, but its box office performance has been somewhat dire, and it may be on its way out sooner than expected. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
1: Um, well, the film I'm most excited about, and I, I, is this my favorite film of the year? It, it, it seems absurd <laughs> to, to think so, but uh, I saw and really loved Brawl in sublock Block 99. Uh, this is the new film by S. Craig Zoller, who had previously done a film called Bone Tomahawk, a Western with Kurt Russell that, that's gotten got a lot of acclaim uh, for good reason. He's a a director who really very deep in his bones understands you know grindhouse cinema, exploitation cinema, but also is not wrapped up in homage. He's somebody who has his own style and his own approach. You know, both of these films, for example, are are like one hundred and thirty some minutes long, so that makes a difference too. And in any case, this stars Vince Vaughn, who's really never been better or more interesting as a former boxer who loses his job at a towing company and, and takes a job as a drug dealer, basically, or a distributor, of a runner, of, of a drug runner. He gets involved in a job that goes wrong with a couple of guys that he d- did want to be involved with to begin with. Um, he takes a noble action that gets him in very, very serious trouble. It lands him in jail, for one, but then it also results in him having to do some Extraordinary things in order to save his his wife and his unborn child, and um, boy, it is a very harsh. Film it, it just like Bone Tomahawk was. To Bone Tomahawk has maybe one of the more notorious scenes of violence uh, of the last you know ten years or so. But it just it gives you so much so much good vivid stuff. I mean you have uh, Don Johnson and Udo Kier and all these wonderful character actors in the movie. And then he'll just spend a lot of time on things that movies don't usually spend a lot of time with, like getting to know what a medium security prison is like and what the process is of being there. It's just it's just a fascinating. Film that seems driven by a, a very distinct sensibility. It reminds me a little bit of like of a director like Quentin Tarantino or you know Rob Zombie on his his best days, who really has internalized a certain type of filmmaking uh, and, and is doing more than just paying homage to it. This he's extending a filmmaking tradition in a meaningful way so I I, I really like this movie it is obviously not 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 for the faint of heart Uh, it is you know there are some extraordinarily violent scenes in the film but um, totally up my alley brawl in cell block you can watch it on uh, VOD at this point It, it really only got a very small release Theatrically and then and then immediately went to VOD on the 13th of October.
0: Yeah, I want to back uh, Scott up on this one. I I actually I saw this at Fantastic Fest. I was thinking of you the whole time, Scott. (laughs) We had a conversation on Twitter about this. I I was the whole time I was thinking Scott is either going to love this or he's going to disappoint me. Uh, (laughs) I, I wouldn't compare him to Tarantino because it might give people the wrong impression because Tarantino is such a. The man drools over his violence. Like, all of his films have kind of a overexcited quality to me. And this film is so chilly and intellectual and, like, quietly intelligent in a way that I find really fascinating. Uh, do not go in expecting a brawl in Cell Block 99 oh. to happen, like, really early on. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely the <laughs> last so act.
1: I mean, you've got this incredible title This like the, the most B-movie title imaginable and yet it's still totally understated. Like Brawl doesn't even come close to describe what goes on in Cell Block 99.
0: <laughs> it's true but he makes you wait the entire movie for it which is one of the many reasons I really enjoyed this film. It surprised me on all levels. I actually interviewed uh, Zahler for The Verge and one of the things I found out that made me even happier was that there's no digital effects in this movie. Everything mm. that he does is is a practical effect. All of the, the brawling, all yeah. of the Cell Block 99 and all of the extreme violence he did as much as possible on the set on the day like that's his aesthetic really like this film. should
1: win best makeup at the very
0: least. Uh. <laughs> Genevieve, uh, what do you have for us?
2: Okay, well, I was going to recommend a movie that I absolutely loved, but I think it is going to be our next pairing inspiration. So instead, I will recommend a movie that I liked quite a bit. (laughs) Um, It's a new HBO documentary called Spielberg, which, as you might glean from the title, is about one Steven Spielberg. This is sort of a biopic by way of career retrospective approach that I think works really well for Spielberg in particular, because he is such a personal filmmaker, even though he's known for working in this big blockbuster paradigm that he more or less defined. But, um, Formerly this is a pretty traditional documentary. Sorry, Scott. Mm -hmm. Uh it's packed with it's packed with film footage and many, many, many famous talking heads, most prominently among them Spielberg himself, who sat for extensive interviews with director Susan Lacey, but was otherwise uninvolved with this film's production. As such, it is a pretty admiring portrait, but it's not quite at the level of like hagiography. It does engage With some of the criticisms Spielberg has received as a director, namely his sentimental streak and his early reputation as a studio director among the more aesthetically inclined movie brats of the late 70s and early 80s, most of whom show up uh, here. But it approaches those criticisms and everything else about Spielberg's work in the context of his personal history and his growth as both a director and a person. Uh, One of the film's most engaging threads to me was him slowly convincing himself that he had to make Schindler's List after years of avoiding it, and how that decision dovetailed with him embracing his Judaism after years spent feeling embarrassed about it growing up. You know, this is Spielberg, so it's not going to be a scandalous or salacious account, but I do think it's a very engaging approach to a body of work we all know very well. Sort of looking at what was motivating The man behind these iconic movies At any given point in his life Uh, Plus it's just an excuse to revel in some of the Most iconic and memorable films ever made Often from a sort of unexpected new angle So I found it highly enjoyable And I think anyone who's ever enjoyed A Spielberg film, which I imagine is just about Everyone, would also find it so So Spielberg, it's uh, on HBO Uh, If you have HBO Go or now You can check it out on that platform Awesome uh Tasha, what about you?
0: Well, I was actually going to uh, talk up Brawl in Cell Block Ninety Nine, but uh, mm. Scott stole my thunder. So uh, you
1: had to know it. You I, had to know I, it was coming. I, I knew it was coming. Uh.
0: Um, so I'm going to go with uh, with some lovers instead of some fighters. Professor Marston and the Wonder Women uh, just hit theaters, and this is a movie about uh, the the man who created Wonder Woman, the the character. Who the original version of the the character was. There was a lot of uh, a lot of bondage in the comics there was a lot of uh, heavy implication of uh, of le- like lesbian romance. There was a lot of like fetishy stuff that that people who were in the fetish scene could recognize. That was kind of coded for children, but it was always sort of a little bit salacious and a lot controversial. And it's a, kind of amazing the the history that this comic came out of. But it's even more amazing the the personal history that it came out of. This is about his relationship with his wife and another woman. who they they formed a long-term, stable triad relationship with each other during a period where such things were completely inconceivable. They're barely conceivable today. But one of the things that this film addresses is the difficulty of navigating an unconventional relationship in a world that very much expects conventional relationships and the difficulty of creating unconventional art in a popular medium uh, that was kind of centered around a very few certain kinds of art. With Wonder Woman enjoying such a cultural moment, this has a, a really interesting kind of tie into the zeitgeist. But just in and of itself, it's a really artful film. Um, the writer-director Angela Robinson is a, a queer black woman, and she kind of brings her experience with with racism and with sexism and with judgment and with homophobic attitudes uh, into this story. She But she doesn't overplay it. I think one of the things that's most interesting about this movie is that in a way it's a, a biopic that's almost mainstream acceptable, but that is fairly fearless about portraying the sexuality and the kink that uh, these three individuals were involved in. And it makes it all seem warm and playful. It makes, it's one of those movies that makes sex seem fun Mm -hmm. that acknowledge that sexual relationships are neither intensely passionate things that happen one time. And then you run off together into the North to avoid being hunted down as replicants (laughs) or sort of, things that you don't really think about because you're in a long-term relationship. It makes sex into a a fun and important part of a relationship and a fun and important part of the film. I just I really recommend seeing this film for a lot of reasons, one of which is supporting a film that's all about representation uh, in a variety of ways. But I also recommend it because it's really enjoyable. The acting is great. The storytelling is great. The imagery is great. I just really enjoyed Professor Marston on The Wonder Woman.
3: I'm glad to hear that because that's such a fascinating story, and, and I wasn't sure that it would translate well into a movie. I wasn't sure how you would translate it <laughs> <laughs> into a movie, frankly. So, cool. I We're going long, so I'll, I'll, I'll be fast. i got two quick recommendations. One is the film uh, Lucky, which is Harry Dean Stanton's uh, last mm-hmm. film, and it is uh, terrific. It is, I believe, his only his second starring role, right? Paris, in Paris, Texas. Is, me, Burris, Texas. Mm-hmm. And he plays Lucky, who's sort of this small-town guy who's in his 90s as uh, Stanton lived to be. And, and there's no conflict in it. It's basically a man who realizes he's not dead yet. And what does it all mean? And it's kind of inspiring into someone who's who's – you know, late in his life, still asking questions, you know, still pondering life, still kind of drawing from his past and trying to turn things over. All this kind of play with a character who says very little and does very little, isn't very expressive. Because at Stanton, though, it's, it's a wonderful performance. You get to really get to know this guy over the course of the film. It's got a great supporting cast. David Lynch plays his, his buddy. Oh uh, other, others, Ron Livingston, Ed Begley Jr., Tom Skerritt. He's got a great scene with, with Tom Scarrett where they bond over their war experiences, and you realize that... Tom Garrett at eighty four is a little too young to have served in World War II. Mm-hmm. But Harry Steen Stanton actually did serve in World War II. But it's a really great Swan song directed by John Carroll Lynch, who is in his own right, I mean a terrific character actor. You know, it's sort of one one character actor paying tribute to another in other ways. So that's that's lucky. And I don't know, it's it's probably drifting around art houses still a little bit. It should be. I'm guessing it's a Magnolia release, which they usually comes out on, on, on home video fairly quickly, but it's not on VOD yet, so uh, look for it soon if you haven't and uh, had a chance to check it out. Another one very quickly is a nice would make a nice double feature with it. It's a film called Super Dark Times. It's very uh, Stephen King influenced. It's the first feature from a director named Kevin Phillips. And it's kind of set in the mid-90s, and it's about these – I don't want to get too much away, but it's about these kids who have sort of kind of a loser's club type thing going on, on the verge of adolescence, on the verge of moving on to the next thing. Uh, something bad happens. Let's leave it at that. And well, I feel like the end of this film, it's, it's very technically well done. It kind of drops the ball a little bit, only because – It simplifies what up to them is very complex and real portrayal of adolescence and all these like sort of walking around with, you know, feelings you don't want to have, relationships shifting in ways that you don't want them to, Uh, you're put in situations that you're just not. Mature enough to deal with, yeah. It's really quite strong debut. I'm looking forward to more. Thanks from Kevin Phillips, the, the the young cast, which includes like Charlie Trahan, Owen Campbell, and, and Elizabeth Cappuccino, uh, who uh, played young Jessica Jones. And uh, Jessica Jones are all people to watch out for. So I'd, I'd recommend I'd recommend them both. We're lucky maybe just a little bit more, but they're they're both worth checking out. And and Super Dark Times had a very small, a very short run in, in art houses. It's on VOD now.
1: Yeah, I I saw Super Dark. Times and and had some mixed feelings, particularly about the third act. But I'm really looking forward to this director's next film (laughs) because the guy has got a lot of talent.
3: Yeah, visually, it's it's, it opens with this amazing imagery of of the aftermath of a deer having run into a high school's window, and it sets this this tone that kind of carries over through the rest of the film. It's uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's nicely done. Definitely,
0: man. It sounds like everything is coming up Stephen King these days. It (laughs) really is. It really is. that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out October 31st and November 2nd. Genevieve, what are we discussing?
2: Our next episodes will focus on two films about the relationship between different generations, starring the same actor, a pairing that puts him on both sides of the generational divide. First, we'll look at Mike Nichols' The Graduate, a film that gave us several memorable catchphrases, an immortal Simon and Garfunkel song, and made a star of Dustin Hoffman, who plays a recent college graduate adrift in the materialistic world of his parents. Then we'll follow the Hoffman thread to Noah Baumbach's new The Mayorowitz Stories, New and Selected, in which Hoffman plays the aging patriarch of a deeply divided New York family. Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler co-star as half-brothers who have to reckon with their father's legacy, tangible and otherwise. Mayorowitz is a Netflix exclusive and can be streamed there, while The Graduate is streaming on Filmstruck and available for digital rental on the usual providers, not to mention on several generations' worth of physical media, including a feature-packed Criterion Blu-ray.
0: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith?
3: You can find me at Uprocks.com where I'm uh, uh, editorial director of film and television and writing when I can. And you can find me online at Twitter at KFIP3000. Scott?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times. I just did a piece on the killing of a sacred deer for Washington Post. Uh, You can find me on NPR and Variety, and I've been doing a little bit more. For Vulture, I've got some Mine Hunter <laughs> recaps happening, and then I did a big list for for our former coworker, now movies editor of Vulture, I did, Rachel Handler. I did a piece, a list of Man vs. Nature movies rank them tw- 25 definitive definitive mm-hmm. ranking. Um so uh what about you Genevieve?
2: You can find me at the Vox culture section and on Twitter at Genevieve Koski. Tasha, you can find me at Twitter
0: at Tasha Robinson. You can find me at The Verge where I am the film and TV editor and also the interview interviewer of the director of in Incel Block 99. I enjoyed that interview and I hope you enjoy it and enjoy the movie. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com Picture NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. We slobber over them <laughs> like rabid dogs. <laughs> Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.
2: I'm almost you.